I am recording this on Sunday, February 19th, but you are watching this on Monday, February 20th, which is President's Day, but also Kurt Cobain's birthday, and also Rihanna's birthday, and also Robert Altman's birthday, and also Grace Jung's 36th birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. That's so nice of you. Thank you. I'll take it. Yes. 36, huh? I like 36, you know? I don't really, I don't have my numerology book with me at the moment, but 36, 3 plus 6 is 9, and 9 is a nice number. It's like a good, it's like a substantial number in numerology. So it feels good. It feels good to be this age. I do feel 36 years old, but I remember, I think it was last year or the year before. And I think last, it must've been last year on my 35th birthday. I remember setting up a plan. Like I said, I was going to lose 35 pounds and then I didn't make any effort whatsoever. And then I started to shed a lot of weight in September of last year. Just, it started just coming off and it coincided with the time that I was doing more body awareness work with yoga. I was also doing a lot more reading on CPTSD specifically and getting order in my brain. And recently, like in recent months, especially around December, January, it's like my brain is on psychedelics, except I'm not on psychedelics. It's just, I'm just like this, <laughs> but my head feels like it's on psychedelics. So it's a very interesting time for me in my wellness journey, my recovery journey. And, oh, and I lost like 28 pounds so far, which is wild. Like since September till now, what is that? Like September, October, November, December, January, February. So like six months, I lost 28 pounds. My goal is to lose about 10 more pounds. Then I think I'll be good. Then I'll go back to, you know, relaxing again. But even now, like I'm not even that gung-ho about it. Like back when I used to diet with like intention, like with a more rigorous intention, it was never for health purposes. It was always to, you know, look hot for some gross dude to pick me up. Yeah, that's literally what drove me to hop on the treadmill. Nowadays, it's more like I know that if I'm not physical for a certain amount of time during the day, I'm going to have trouble sleeping later. I'm going to have pent up energy that's going to make me anxious and frustrated and depressed. It's more like for my own physical, mental and emotional and spiritual well-being that I am pursuing these physical activities now. So it the intention's very different this time around on my weight loss journey. There's like clarity and unity and synchronicity and all of it feels good. Like I feel like I am in really good hands at the moment. And that's such a nice feeling. It's a secure feeling and it's a new feeling. All of this is very new for me. So 
thanks for indulging me. Listen, this is just going to be an indulgent episode. Yes. It's been a minute since Grace got indulgent on her podcast, has it not? Because I haven't really had many guests in the last few months. With all that said, to my listeners, if there is a show that you would like me to cover, send them my way. Just You send them. You email them to kdramaschool at gmail.com. I will watch them. I mean, if it interests me, if it, if it doesn't interest me, I'm not going to watch it. Like, I'm not going to do it. But if it interests me, if I see a star or some showrunner's name that I recognize, then yeah, I'll dig into it. I'll take a look and I will cover it. Yes, please. So reach out. Thank you. The show I'm going to discuss today is called Save Me, which is an OCN Korean drama from 2017. OCN is a cable network in South Korea, and I believe OCN is mostly known for movies. Yeah, OCN usually would narrowcast films on their channel. I remember this because when I was living in Seoul, I was watching a lot of movies on OCN, and I believe the C in OCN is cinema. I'm not 100% sure, but yeah, OCN is mostly a film channel, and this show is an OCN exclusive so it's for ocn's network but right now it's not on netflix save me used to be on netflix but it's currently on like nbc's peacock their nbc streaming channel or something so you can you can find it it's floating around or just like watch it on drama cool you know you guys know how to pirate stuff but save me is a very interesting show and it's it's also significant that it's on ocn because ocn their shows are particularly violent yes they're particularly grim and if you've seen save me you know that this show has a lot of intensity in it this show it follows a family that moves to a smaller suburban town called muji they're a soul family but they move to muji which is a tightly controlled area by this religious cult called kosonwon and there are themes of disability, like in the case with Sangjin, who has a limp, and he gets bullied by his peers and the kids around town, and he eventually commits suicide, leaving behind his parents and his twin sister, Sangmi. So Sangmi is the protagonist on this show. The mother loses her mind after the loss of her son, and the devastation of this family tragedy forces Hangmi's father to seek solace from this religious cult. And it's very evident that the cult is administering some kind of drug infused in the water bottles that they hand out at the church that make people like hallucinate and feel the presence of God and they become more emotionally and mentally vulnerable for manipulation from that cult leader. These Korean dramas with a religious cult theme, they often use fanaticism as an aesthetic, as a visual aesthetic. So it's usually like they they take some kind of drug within this religious cult setting, and then they experience some kind of um, drug-induced spiritual awakening, which is fine, but the cult leader's motives are always questionable. So for instance, in this case, Hangmi's family, the people like the father starts to cry, right? He has this like emotional like breakthrough. And then he just devotes his whole entire life and his whole entire family's life 
into this cult. He also puts all of his money into the cult as well. So that's the problem, right? It's not that any religion is problematic or any spirituality is problematic. It's the cult system and the uh, malicious intent of the cult leader that hurts families, okay? Takes away their freedom, takes away their livelihood. That's where the problems, that's where the problems lie. Some aspects of this show were triggering for me, particularly when Sangmi's dad wouldn't listen to his daughter, who expresses her fear and disgust of the cult leader, who is Pik Jung-gi, and his motives are very obvious. It's like obvious that he wants to have sex with Sangmi, right? But he keeps saying like, this is like God's intention. This is God's calling. And the show's title is Save Me, which is based on Sangmi's request for salvation uh, from this cult when she reaches out to her school peers. But the irony of this title, Save Me, of course, uh, sort of harkens towards this salvation concept that is used in the Christian context. And this show is a very obvious critique of religious cult fanaticism and the way it takes advantage of vulnerable families experiencing traumatic hardship. I've mentioned this a couple of times already on my podcast, but South Korea and its history are rife with religious cults. And I think it's linked to civilians seeking healing from their traumas and psychological anguish. I was reading a article that was published in 1999. So it's a little bit dated. It was published in the journal called Transcultural Psychiatry written by Dr. Kwang Yee Kim. And it's a tad dated, but gives really good insight into how South Korea was in the late 1990s, especially around uh, this, this theme of mental illness, psychology, and religion. So Koreans with psychological problems, like even schizophrenia, they would not seek psychiatric treatment. Instead, they would prefer folk treatment, shamanic rituals, home care, and herbal medicine, which they would find through their family members, word of mouth, through their community, okay? There's this consistent suspicion around psychiatric treatment in this behavioral tendency. And about half of the patients who got admitted into hospitals due to their mental illnesses would just leave the hospital immediately against doctor's orders. Yeah, they they would be like, no, like, I need to get the hell out of here. And this decision to discharge against medical advice usually came from the influence from their family members. So family members would be like, no, like my child or my cousin or my aunt or my mother or my wife or my husband, they are not mentally ill. How dare you label us? We're getting the fuck out of here. So that's the logic behind it. And from that, you could sense this fear of the stigma behind medical, um, this medical diagnosis, especially if it's a psychological problem, right? Like they just didn't want to be labeled crazy. And South Korea still does struggle with this social stigmatization. They, I don't know, it's like, we see a lot of K-dramas nowadays that address mental illness. In fact, mental illness is almost evident in every single Korean drama practically, yeah. If you, if you want to count trauma as a mental illness, which in my case I do, it's evident in every single Korean drama because trauma is the inciting incident for all of those shows. But for some reason, they don't want to deal with it. 
in the actual reality of it. So the patients and families turn to religion for a faith-based healing, uh, not just for mental disorders, but also for physical illnesses and diseases. Yeah, but psychiatric disorders are the most common when they seek faith-based healing. On a personal level, I do know that Koreans don't like to be labeled with any disorders. In my own family, I know that there is a definite history of PTSD, depression, and anxiety. I wouldn't be surprised if there's also bipolar disorder mixed in there, especially from my paternal side of the family. But most recently in my generation, no, in the generation that came after mine, so my cousin's son, so he's my second cousin, but in the Korean context, he'd be my nephew. So. He's a teenager, and when I last visited Korea, I was like, oh, he has autism. Like, because I remember about 15 years ago when I was living in Seoul, I remember seeing him and like he he would always be taken to therapy, like um, like he was in elementary school and they would like take him to therapy. And I was like, what's like, wh why is he going to therapy? And my cousin would always be vague about it. You know, and I was just like, oh, maybe it's just like a behavioral thing, you know, like maybe he's getting into fights in school. I don't know. He seemed like a docile kid. But when I saw him like this time around as a teenager, I was like, oh, he has autism. It's like very obvious he has autism. And my cousin just couldn't say it. She just couldn't tell me that he has autism, even though it's like right there, like in my face. It's like, oh, he's autistic. It's fine. Like I have autistic friends, whatever. But she just could not get herself to admit that, which was very, I don't know, it was like, oh, it's a little surprising to me. My cousin, uh, when I last visited her, she was also experiencing extreme depression. And she was just like, you know, I don't know, she was like crying. She was a little drunk too, but she was crying and she was telling me that she's depressed and that she's going through menopause. But then she confessed something. And then I was like, oh, there's a reason for her depression. This isn't just a chemical thing. And I'm not going to get into the details of it because that's her own personal thing. But I was like, well, you should reach out for counseling. You know, I told her that I've been in cognitive behavioral therapy for like a decade and a half and that it's been very beneficial to me and that I don't think much of it, you know, because in New York, LA, everybody's in therapy, right? So I didn't think much of it, but she was just like a little hesitant but she's like okay like if you say that it does help with depression then i'll go and see counseling so she goes to um see a doctor she found like an older male doctor okay and this bitch goes to therapy and she lies to the doctor she did not tell him the real reason why she was feeling depressed instead she lied and just told him like i have depression because i have menopause so he just wrote her a prescription for like estrogen or something. And that was the end of it. She did not talk at all about her, the real reason why she was depressed. And I was just like, how are you going to do that? You know, like my cousin's a nurse. All right. She is in the medical field and she has a son who she takes to therapy every single week, multiple times a week. And she's been doing it for over a decade, but she couldn't get herself to do that and that's when I realized oh my god like it's really hard for South Korean civilians it's really really hard there's so much fear around this this labeling the diagnosis you know even if it means getting help yeah like when it came to my own personal diagnosis there was a big sense of 
gladness because I remember when I was in my early 20s, like when I first started therapy, I remember telling my therapist, I was like, I think there's something mentally ill about me. I think I'm psychologically disturbed. I remember telling her this and she was like, well, then you would have to go through a screening and that would also require you to get an MRI and this and that. And then the MRI thing freaked me out because um, like I have a bunch of reasons why, but mostly it had to do with money. So I didn't go through with it. And then they were like, if you don't get an MRI, then we can't diagnose you. And the reason why they said they can't is because at the time I had suffered like a severe head trauma and they were like yeah we we can't go through with it all my therapists thereafter even though they were all psychologists none of them not a single one intervened and said to me what my diagnosis was it's very strange how that is they would just sit there listen to the things that i would say none of them would ever intervene and then when i started working working with my current psychologist since 2019 she's the one that diagnosed me and the way that she diagnosed me wasn't even like you have you know ptsd you have complex ptsd she didn't even say that it was more like every time i told her a story she would frame it and say that is a trauma that is a trauma that is a trauma she would like label it get me to understand what it is she would give me these pocket lectures about what trauma does to the brain and she would like slowly educate me on this you know, and then that's when I started to put together the pieces over the years. And I realized, oh, I have what's called long-term PTSD or CPTSD, complex PTSD. And that's why I'm telling you that the last few months for me ha has been like this sort of psychedelic experience. As in, I feel like the pieces of me that were like floating around in the ether are slowly coming back into the fold. Like I could literally feel like I'm being plugged back into myself in the last couple of months. It's a very new feeling. It's a very different feeling from anything else that I've experienced up until this point in my life. So I'll, I'll keep, I guess, updating you on this journey uh, when I feel, when I feel like it, I know I've been a somewhat closed mouthed on it, but I'm, I'm more open about this at this moment because of my guest and I want to explain to you all that this episode is particularly vulnerable for me. I go, I go very deep. I know that I've been vulnerable on this podcast before. You guys have definitely seen me cry. You guys have heard me talk about my traumatic experiences, but this one is particularly deep. And there are also some trigger warnings for you. I do talk about sexual assault. I do talk about child abuse. I also talk about war trauma. I talk about military trauma. I talk about domestic violence. But I also talk about healing and catharsis and shamanism and dreams and many other rich things with Dr. Ham, who is my guest. And this talk has a thickness, as my former professor Amy Viarejo used to say repeatedly in her lectures. Okay, there is a thickness to our talk and it's very nourishing uh, to my psyche, to my soul in every which way. And I can't I can't express to you how lucky and grateful I felt to have spoken to Dr. Hum. Let me introduce to you who Dr. Hum is and how I got to find him. So 
Dr. Jacob Hum is a clinical psychologist. He's based in New York and he works out of Mount Sinai Hospital. He's also the director of Center for Child Trauma and Resilience and an associate clinical professor at Mount Sinai Medical School. He's a senior clinical advisor at the Fresh Start Retreat Center and his educational background is stellar. Okay, he's a Brown alum. He earned his PhD in psychology at UMass. He did his pre-doctoral and postdoctoral fellowships at Harvard Medical School. But more than that, I was particularly impressed by his artwork on his website. Yeah, Dr. Hom is a very accomplished illustrator. Yeah, hello, who knew? He's very good. Check him out, I love him, they're so moving. He also has a list of book recommendations on his website, which I thought was a very generous move on his part. And I actually read Tattoos on the Heart by Gregory Boyle last year because of his uh, book recommendations right after I read about him in Stephanie Fu's book. And um, just coincidentally, this was like a synchronistic thing that happened. LA comedian Chris Estrada, He's a fellow L.A. comedian. His Hulu show, This Fool, was streaming like right around the time that I was reading that book, which was just like a nice coincidence. And that that show, This Fool, is based on stories in part taken from Gregory Boyle's experiences. So I thought that was fucking awesome. And if you've if you've not seen that show, This Fool, on Hulu, please check it out. It's really good. It's really, really good. When I saw Chris at the Hollywood Improv Christmas party, I remember grabbing him and being like, thank God for you. Thank God for you and your show. It is so, so, so good. It is so, so, so funny. And I swear to God, I don't really say that to to a lot of LA comedians. Like I could I couldn't give a shit what other people do. But Chris's show, it's such a gift. It is so good. Yeah, check it out if you have not seen it. I was very nervous before meeting with Dr. Hum uh, because I've listened to all of his talks on podcasts that he's been a guest on. Like I've been listening to him over and over again while writing my book and also for my own personal healing journey. Like he just says such insightful things that perfectly blend heart and intellect. Just like the most divine balance of these two things which is like oh beautiful i love it you know because i like intellectual stuff but i also like heart yeah i do mention jesus on this episode but i want to be clear that i am not a christian i am a religious okay but i am a deeply spiritual person and i conduct my own spiritual practice daily to stay connected to my higher self to my higher consciousness but i am not a christian so i want to be clear about that for political reasons Two things happened after I talked to Dr. Ham. Later that evening after our talk, I had this memory surface in my in my mind. It was like a like a deeply packed away memory, but it was my 6th birthday. So my first birthday celebration as an immigrant in Brooklyn, New York with my parents and my younger brother and uh I just remember there was just a lot of love in that memory that I just I don't know completely filed away. So that was an interesting and nice experience that I had after our talk. I also had a dream. This is a recurring dream of mine lately. So the theme is always the same. I'm I'm in some place, some guy, some 
dude with like a little bit of clout he comes to me and he's like grace like there are these people these important people they want to meet you but i'm like no like hold on i have to take a shower wait i have to pee first wait i have to go and pack my stuff wait i forgot my makeup wait what am i wearing like i have all these little excuses to say like i'm not good enough i'm not ready i'm not good enough you know when all i have to do is just go and meet them right but i keep stalling it that's the recurring dream that i'm having these days and i know exactly why i'm having the, that recurring dream it's because i am at the moment working on feeling like i do deserve good things in my life like i deserve love i deserve good fortune you know this is something i've added recently to my affirmations that i say daily and it's like i'm in the struggle you know like i'm in the the change spot yeah so the recurring dream that I had after my talk with Dr. Hom, this it was the same thing, but the space in that dream, there was a lot more cleanliness. Yeah, because before it was like, when I go into those spaces, it's like dirty, it's like gross, you know? But this time it was clean. And I also saw a baby cow. <laughs> it was like reddish dark fur, baby calf and had like black streaks and he was running to me and i remember running away from the cow because i was like listen cow i can't deal with you you're a little too burdensome for me like i can't handle a cow at this juncture in my life and i was like running away from the cow i remember running down a bunch of stairs and i was like if i run down some stairs this cow won't follow me this cow followed me he followed me down the stairs and at the bottom of the stairs i saw a bunch of rottweilers they were all like sitting very calmly you know, like all, they weren't piled together. They were all separate, but they were all sitting still. And then when I ran into this bathroom so that I could take a shower and get ready to like go and see the guy and those important people, I, it was like locking the door so that I could lock the cow out of my bathroom. But in the bathroom, there was a Rottweiler walking around and I had to walk the Rottweiler out of the bathroom. I was like, please leave because I got to take a shower. Right. So I'm still dealing with this like inability to just accept let the good thing come in. Like a cow is good fortune. It's good luck. You know, like you want that cow. Yes. Come inside. Come hang out, cow. You know, it's like, I should accept it. But it's like, no, 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 no. Like I, I, I can't, you know. And the Rottweiler too, I was thinking, I was like, what's significant about a Rottweiler? Well, I personally like love Rottweilers, but Rottweilers are often framed like in a villainous light, especially in Hollywood media. You know, they're framed as like, aggressive, hostile, rageful, scary, you know, they're associated with gangs and thugs and criminals, right? But also, but to me personally, Rottweilers are like very loyal. They're great protectors. They're also very affectionate, you know? And so it's like, I think the dream was trying to get me to make peace or see anger or aggression or rage or hostility in a different light, like in a more holistic light, like what are the other angles that you can examine this characteristic of mine, this personality of mine that I always beat myself up about or shame myself about, the fight aspect in me, I always beat myself up about this. How do I look at it from a different angle? And then I saw it from all these different angles. Yeah, and then on Friday night, I remember smoking a little bit of pot and I got like this rush of awareness around anger and I was like writing things down. Like I won't get into the details of it, but it was like, it was intense. Um, I also had Reiki on Friday 
so it was two days after my talk with Dr. Hom. I had Reiki on Friday. And on Friday during Reiki, my Reiki therapist said the same thing to me that Dr. Hom said and that my Reiki friend said to me on Monday. They All three of them told me roots and grounding. Yeah, grounding meditations, roots. And my Reiki therapist, when she had her hands at my feet, my feet were like, it was like they were on like static electricity. There was like all this pulsating and like, it was very interesting. I've never had such a sensation before. And she told me, she's like, you're always up here, like wandering around and going places out of your head. That's where your energy lies. But she was like, try and visualize yourself grounding into the earth a lot more. She also told me that there was some like um, blockage in my right hip and that she removed it. And after she did that blockage removal thing, um, like I was horny as hell. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have done Reiki before, but like, oh my gosh. Like I know that the hip is a sacral chakra area. I didn't realize that I had a blockage there, but man, oh man, was I fired up. I was super aroused. Yeah. <laughs> Friday and Saturday. Oh my gosh. It's like, I was ready to just like go across the street, go to a bar and just grab any old guy and just come home because I was fucking turned on, man. <laughs> Um, so yeah, if your libido's low, go and get Reiki. Maybe there's a blockage, okay? It, it, it was nice. It, it wasn't like like a desperate horniness. It was more like I was turned on for myself kind of thing. It's very new. It's a very new feeling. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, Grace is in the transition phase. Yes, she's changing. She's evolving, okay? She's going from Pikachu to Raichu, okay? So that's where I'm at, all right? It's very interesting, very fun. Oh, and uh, this is one last thing. I was um, talking about my insomnia problem, okay? So I have insomnia. I've had insomnia since I was a child, and I just can't, quote unquote, fix this insomnia problem. So after my talk with Dr. Hom on Wednesday, I could not sleep again that night. I had such a trouble falling asleep, and I was like up awake till like two in the morning. And I was just like, I just sat up in bed in the dark, and I was like, I've had it. You know, I need to... I don't know why I've never done this before, but I did my inner child work exercise to address my insomnia. So I got just, I settled down, I got quiet, and the, and I just asked, how old am I? The answer came super fast. It was like fourth grade. I was like, are you sure? Because there's fifth, sixth. She's like, she's like, no, fourth grade. I was like, okay, fourth grade. We're fourth graders. What's, what's going on in fourth grade? And she goes, hell's bells. I was like, what the hell's, oh, hell's bells, the movie. <laughs> that Christian propaganda movie from 1989. It's two VHS tapes and a box set. It's this Christian propaganda documentary that vilifies rock music from the 80s, saying that it's Satan's music. It's a fascinating and camp object if you think about it now, but as a fourth grader when I was 10 years old, I should not have been watching this because the church kids, the older church kids, the kids in high school, they were watching it. And I was just like, I snuck in there and I was like watching this you know, even though I wasn't supposed to be there. And I watched it and man, I shouldn't have watched it. It scared the bejesus out of me and I could not sleep at night. And I remember as a fourth grader, I went to my parents' room and I was trying to wake my mom up so I could sleep next to her, but she snapped at me and she barked at me to go back to bed. And I couldn't because I was fucking scared. So what I did was I crouched down at the foot of the bed and I slept on the floor for a couple of hours. And then that triggered another memory from when I was four and I was at my older aunt's house, my paternal aunt's house. And I was I was sharing a bed with her daughter. Her daughter was in high school and I would share a bed with her, but it was a small bed. And at night 
this daughter, she would hog all the blankets and I'm like a four-year-old and it's freezing. So I would wake up and I would try to get the blankets. I would try to wake her up. I'd be like, Unni, wake up. She wouldn't. She'd be like dead asleep. So I would sleep on the floor with no blankets. And I don't know how many hours I was awake, like in the cold on the floor like that as a four-year-old, but those memories came up. So I was like, okay, hell's bells, 10-year-old Grace. She's scared. And then there's four-year-old Grace. She's cold and feels abandoned. She feels sorry for herself. You know, there's like a sadness. I was like, okay, all right, I'm here. Let's you and I sleep together, okay? I went and got like that heating pad for my bed. I was like, here's a heating pad. It'll keep us warm, okay? You and I will stay warm tonight. And I remember asking, I was like, do you need to go to the bathroom? You know, I'll walk you to the bathroom, you know? Took her to the bathroom, came back, tucked her in. And I said we'll sleep together. You know, you don't have to be alone. You don't have to be cold. You don't have to be scared. You have me. I'm here. I'm on your side. Yeah. And I swear to God, I fell asleep in just a matter of minutes. Miraculous. I've tried, you guys, I've tried puzzles. Okay. <laughs> I've tried yoga. I've tried sleep meditation. I've tried tapping meditation. I've tried sleep meditation videos. None of them worked. The inner child work thing, that took a matter of, what, seven, eight minutes? Worked like a charm. Yeah. So I slept well Wednesday night, Thursday night, slept well. I'm in a place, man. I'm in a certain place, okay? And it's an interesting place to be in. All right. I, I feel like I've been talking way too much. All right, I've been talking way too much, so let's just dive right into it. Without further ado, here's our talk with Dr. Jacob Hom. Yeah, I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for making the time. I really appreciate sure. it. Sure, of course. Um, um, are you just home today? You're not at the office? Yeah, I'm never in the office. Oh, so you work remotely? Yeah, I'm trying to avoid. I mean, the hospital still requires us to wear masks indoors. Mm -hmm. So you can't do therapy while wearing a mask. Oh, oh, that's interesting. It's like waterboarding someone. Right. Right. Yeah, you have to see their faces. Just so that you and I can get a little acquainted, like, because I've listened to a lot of your podcast talks, like when you were guests when you were a guest on other podcasts and um, I really enjoyed everything you said <laughs> and you talk a little bit about your own background there too. So I'm like aware that, you know, you're a psychologist. I know that uh, your mother is a North Korean refugee. I know that you work with trauma um, and I know that you work with children and families, um, but mostly you know, adults it, nowadays. Oh, now it's Actually. mostly adult. Okay, so it's shifted a bit. Okay. Um, but uh, I think it'd be weird if, like, you didn't know anything about me. So um, I'll just give you, like, a brief intro of who I am. So um, my name's Grace, Grace Chung. Hello. And uh, I'm a stand-up comedian, and I'm also a writer, and uh, I'm also a PhD. I have a doctorate in film and media studies from UCLA. And this podcast is really me. Thank you. 
congratulations on your uh, achievement. <laughs> uh, I, I made this podcast mainly to talk about Korean TV shows because I've been watching them all my life and they're very popular around the globe nowadays. And I'm like, well, you know, I have this degree. It's kind of useless at the moment in this economic recession and uh, awful academic market. So, uh, you know, I'm putting it to use uh, in my own way. And um, yeah, and when I was, uh, oh, and I'm also a, a CPTSD survivor and I'm in therapy. My uh, own shrink is like amazing. You know, she's um, like the fifth one that I've worked with in the last 15 years. And I've been with her for four, three, no, four years now. And my work with her has been very effective. So I feel very lucky in that regard. Um, but I'm currently in the midst of rewriting a book that is going to come out in uh, spring 2024. And uh, it's called K-Drama School. And it's uh, basically me looking at all K-dramas, analyzing them, but triangulating my analysis from a point of me as a trauma survivor, but also looking at modern Korean history and its traumas as a nation. And then looking at the inciting incidents and the traumas they're in, in the shows and like what the characters are going through. And I, I sort of do this um, analysis um, of each text from that standpoint. And I've been listening to your talks on podcasts while also reading about uh, CPTSD uh, more in depth for my own personal growth for the most part, but also for this book. And you always say such like profound things, you know, uh, very poetic stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, I, I hope you write a book. You know, I really do because you say really, I have a book really... agent, so it is coming. Okay, thank God, because I'm like, <laughs> where, where's this dude's book? You know, because um, when I want to talk about trauma from a Korean context, there's a whole lot of literature in academia dedicated to Korean trauma. They talk about it constantly, but it's so boring and it's so like ineffective in its vision for healing that I find, I find them frustrating. In fact, I find them very triggering as I read them. Uh, you could pretty much label anything in Korean studies to uh, be some sort of exploration of Korean trauma in general. Oh, yeah. Constantly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the violence in our movies. It's all trauma processing. And the melodrama, too. The tearfulness and the crying and the screaming and the wailing and the throwing and the uh, blaming and the, you know, it's endless. So the reason why I wanted to talk to you specifically is because, okay, like, here's this doctor who's Korean-American, but you're also an emigrant. I mean, you were born in South Korea, right? Where in South Korea were you born? In Seoul. Oh, okay. So, all right. Okay. That's cool. I'm from Busan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'm like, you know, like, could he possibly, you know, fill this gap when it comes to talking about Korean trauma in a more productive way while keeping um, this end goal of healing and processing, right? Like 
successfully, like as an achievement in the end. So that's why I wanted to talk to you specifically. Yeah. Yeah. But are we going to be able to um, use you as the nexus for all this? Sure. Why not? I'm already in it. I'm already doing it. <laughs> and you're revealing yeah. some of your stuff. A lot of Is it okay stuff, if it goes yeah. a little therapy ish with you? Totally. Please, by all means, I am open to it. I'm down. You know, like part of what make makes this writing process so uh, difficult, challenging, but in an exciting way for me is because in academia, when we write about whatever, we have to leave ourselves out. It's like mystifying everything that's personal with other people's theories and some whatever. And it's like, I don't, I don't see, I, I can't connect to it at all. Um, but so when I'm writing this book, I'm trying to incorporate my academic rigor, but also bring in my own personal stuff. And it feels so like sacrilegious because in academic writing, we're just not, we're told, we're trained not to do that. And it's like, I'm trying to amalgamate these two parts of me along with my clown self, my comedian self, my comedian voice. And it's such a new alchemy for me. Um, and it makes it very, very challenging, but like also really exciting. So yeah, um, I'm I'm like fully in the book. So yeah, and I'm fully here. This is my podcast. You are my guest. So yeah, please, by all means. I'm getting so excited about this. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Um, th th I, I totally geek out on this tech stuff. Do you want me to put on my over the ear headphones instead? Does that matter to you so that I can like Doesn't hear myself? To me. It sounds fine as it is, huh? It sounds fine to me. Yeah. Okay. I'll just stay close to the mic then. Okay. Do you have an idea of where you're going to lead us? Yeah. I have like a bunch of questions that I wrote down. <laughs> I, I did like so okay. much work before meeting with you today. I was like meditating, like writing things down, like reading stuff. Um, one of the first questions that I have is um, when you're dealing Wait, with. Have we already started? Oh, yeah. It's been about eight minutes in. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's, it's very uh, in media res. That's my style. Um, okay. Yeah. So, Before you ask the question, sure. Can we um, share an share an intention? Oh, of course. Yeah, that's a really good one. Would you like to go first? Um. Uh, I, this is gonna be so cheesy. Um, yes, I like cheese. All I care about is that you heal a little bit today. Oh, yeah. That's so nice. I feel emotional already. Okay. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Thank you. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm not as brave as you are. I can't go that cheesy. No. Um, I My intention uh, is to get some answers to these questions that... Um, I have deep in me that I know is connected to a larger 
me, meaning my, my history and everything I come from and my relatives and everything I come from. So that, I guess that's my intention to get some answers. Why? Oh. Because it's heavy. I mean, um, I don't like feeling trapped in the same few questions over and over, or the same few narratives over and over, the same few uh, frustrations or blame or resentments over and over. So I'd like an escape from those loops, I suppose. So it's actually our intentions are aligned. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You want freedom. Freedom from the burden of whatever this is. Yeah. Yes. Freedom. Always. Okay. Now we're ready. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yes. Okay. Yes, my first question is a little more generic, but in your line of work, when you're dealing with Korean American patients, I wonder, like, what common through line do you see in them uh, that you would attribute to the chaos of modern Korean history, be it colonization or the loss of a monarch, the loss of a sovereignty, uh, loss of a political infrastructure, national division, civil war? Um, military dictatorships, the military conscription duty for all men, and then nowadays it's the issue of the very high suicide rate in South Korea. So I wonder, when you're looking at the Korean diaspora patients, like, do you see some of those elements contributing to their current pain and sorrows? And if so, like, what, what through line do you see across them? Um, one, I don't see that many Korean Americans in my practice. I have more Chinese people and oh. Jewish people, obviously, cause I'm in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, but the cultural traumas that different, different people have endured leave a very similar through line. Okay. Um, see what's different about your perspective in mind is that um, I'm only looking at how they show up in the room. Oh, that's the common through line. Okay. Um, and what I see is um, what's your relationship to emotions? What's your relationship mm -hmm. to vulnerability? Mm -hmm. uh, how hard do you have to overachieve? That's a common through line. Mm hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Do you motivate yourself with a whip or with like with true intention? Mm -hmm. That's a common through line. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that um, there's a, the imprint of all that stuff is in the way we treat ourselves, um, whether or not we live life through this lens of um, constant survival versus giving ourselves time to have leisure and recreation and joy. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not we allow feelings to be in us or in our children or whether our parents allowed us to have feelings or whether it was just like, like, you know, grades, food. Right. Mm -hmm. 
yeah so it's my my focus is on uh what's immediately happening in the room okay okay i like that in that case i'm gonna shift a little bit um Maybe I'm not ready to shift just yet. Before that, there's one thing you mentioned, uh, overachievement. Like, there's this drama called Sky Castle. It was the first show I covered when I started this podcast. And it's about middle-aged mothers, women, and uh, they have children in high school, some in middle school. And these mothers are very extreme helicopter parents. Uh, these kids have to get into Seoul National University. They have to be pre-med majors, and they have to become a third-generation doctor for that family lineage. That's it. Bottom line, right? And it's excessive. Yeah. Um, when I'm watching the show, it's like, all right, we, there are multiple issues at play, but at the core, what drives a person to overachieve with such intensity you think okay um well there's the cultural motivator which is that um the only way that you're going to have food the way the only way that you're going to have any status or be able to survive at all is through accomplishment i mm -hmm. i've been seeing it more clearly with my chinese patients where like they have stories of um like their parents being the sole person who passed the entrance, the college exam. And it's the only way to get off the fields or in the factories. The only way to go to college is that you have to like pass this exam, this national exam. Mm -hmm. And so there's this urgency, this life or death urgency to succeed. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that we have the same thing. Um, the only way that, the only way to be valued by the Japanese would be to be super smart. Mm -hmm. Um. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only way to climb out of abject poverty is to have any financial success. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the cultural thing. But then on a deeply interpersonal psychological th level, I find that overachievement is actually a, um, it's a proxy for seeking love. Oh. And my, my thesis is that um, when our parents are so focused on just surviving physically, then our emotional health is put aside. And it's mm -hmm. the next generation's job to deal with the emotional health if the financial mm -hmm. and physical health is secured. Um, and so I think that people just, they don't feel loved, valued as individuals. It's only through what you can produce. And so then accomplishment is the only way to garner attention, to garner praise. And all of those feel good. They feel like love. It's mm -hmm. the closest thing we know to love. And so we chase it with a life or death energy that a baby chases being close to their parent because they would die without being close to their parent. Yeah. Or die without love. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I had a question and then it disappeared. Maybe it's not that important or maybe it'll come back. But um, what happens when uh, this 
let's say, a narcissistic helicopter parent's identity merges with their child's? And, uh, or what about the opposite? When a child's identity merges with their parents? Like, there, for instance, there's this one scenario. Extreme helicopter mother, you know, she, she was very abusive to her son. Her son did get into Seoul National University, but the way, the journey to that was horrendous. I mean, she would say to him, you don't deserve to eat because you were not number one in your class. You know, you should just go outside and die because you did not get straight A's. You know, it's just excessive abuse, right? And very, like, conditioned. Um, excessive survival parenting. Oh, okay. See, even the words okay. that she uses, if you don't get first, you will die. If you don't get first, you won't eat. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what happens is this kid gets into Seoul National University, and then he immediately disappears from the mother's life. He runs away, shacks up with some girl. And what she does as a result of this, and I think it's because, like, I don't know, she lost her sense of self, perhaps, because it was so shocking. Um, She blows her head off with a rifle. Very, very extreme. Um, This is a true story. No, this is from Sky Castle, the show that I'm talking about. I really hope it's not a true story. But man, like at the end of this pilot episode, I was like, I'm in. I'm going to watch this show till the end. What a dramatic ending. But she literally, I mean, she kills herself because all of her pride and joy and her, um, you know, ego self, like the one that's like, you know, delighting in this, like that object has now vanished. It's totally gone and she kills herself i mean i guess my question is like in your in your um definition like how would you define uh the ego and the super ego in relation to trauma and perhaps even in this scenario mm, those are mixed ego and super ego are different from what you're talking about i think sorry oh, okay. for saying that critically no please um, by all means uh, and i'm gonna avoid defining it the classic way I think what you're really asking is something else what was it what is your real question do you think how can a mother do this oh no that well I guess it's more like I in my reading it was like oh her her ego died you know when her son decided to you know disappear from her life and reject her Mm. and not and not do the thing that she had built him up to do um so it's like her ego necessarily see it that way okay um Mm. see like there's an there's an edge of othering her in that there's an edge of um pathologizing her she wouldn't agree that that's that her ego died how would she describe it she would describe it as she failed as a mother that Mm. all of her love she thought she was doing the right thing and then he rejected her Mm -hmm. it's heartbreak yeah okay this is good. This is helpful for me because, uh, <laughs> no, I, I enjoy intellectualizing. Um, 
because well, you know it, it brings a I'm high. Sorry, it's, yeah. I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah. Sorry for this. Um, okay. It's it's both intellectualizing, and yeah. there's a tinge of something in it. There's a tinge yeah. of um, justifiable anger that at her be, her actions. Uh huh. That she was so hard on this kid that he uh -huh. would be willing to run away from her and never see her again. Right. It is it is like something that we don't want. Mm -hmm. um, but then the, for me, the question is why would she go to such lengths if not for the need to survive that she has, she was that desperate that this was the only way to succeed. Somehow she, this was instilled in her that if, you, if you're not number one, you will die and you will not eat. Mm -hmm. She was living that viscerally in her parenting. It was all misattuned to him because he was not hungry or going to get shot if he wasn't number one. But her survival instincts that were hardwired into her from the histories of trauma that are hardwired into us intergenerationally, mm -hmm. that's what was ruling her. Right. Um, so it's, n it's not about ego. It's, it's all just about survival. Hmm. Okay, yeah. You know, you uh, time and time again in, in your other podcast talks, you always bring up this word poignancy um, repeatedly. And I was just like, okay. I wonder if it's similar to this, like you're trying to find like a, a very human balance. Like, okay, we acknowledge that what she did was painful for this young man and the show does vilify her frames her in that um but also frames her as a mother in despair too you know like she's crying a lot and she's obviously in desperate straits um and i think you're trying to bring that into my awareness too right now by sort of trying to capture the poignancy of that motherhood of that identity tragedy perhaps yeah the the heartbreak of it yeah yes. um that it's more than just you know about her bragging rights you know yeah perhaps like that is in there but it's there alongside her intense love for her son um her and it's like well how does she define that love oh with success he needs to succeed he needs to be set up for greatness and he needs to do well um alongside all of that yeah um like no yeah please can i of course are you sure um yeah what i if you, if we were in a real therapy session mm -hmm. then what i'd want to do is that i wouldn't want you to feel like oh that was wrong of me to do that to her mm -hmm. to somehow vilify yeah. her yeah it's actually like oh isn't it interesting that there was an urge to be angry at her <laughs> that and then we would go into what is your own anger at this archetype of mother, this oppressive misguided mother archetype about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we would, uh, we would, we would honor the validity of your anger mm -hmm. in like what happened to me and what happens to the children of trauma survivors is not right. Mm -hmm. It's not fair. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. your anger is a, is like a compass to how things should have been or what mm. is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so you honor the anger 
And then as you honor the anger, it invites the, the grief and the loss of what didn't happen, of what you didn't get or what we didn't get as children because of survival parenting. Mm -hmm. We invite that part of us to come into this space between us two. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate you taking the time to note that. Um, no, absolutely. Like when I look at, I don't know, when I look at like what I do in my own work, um, I get emotional flashbacks daily and uh, multiple times throughout the day. It's not as bad as my 20s. In my 20s, it was like, like every minute I would be triggered or my head would be in some place. Um, and I, I remember constantly saying, like, I, I want to blow my fucking head off. Or, you know, or when I looked in the mirror, I would say that too. Like, um, but it was very intense because it was like a constant. But now it's not as frequent, uh, but I still get them daily. And um, it's usually the inner critic voice, the, the staff sergeant marine, you know. <laughs> um, and it's like, I always have to take the time to ask them, like, so what's up? Like, what did I, like, what can I do? You know, like, what are you here to tell me? And I, and I go through that. And it starts at the place of fight where I'm angry and triggered. But once I acknowledge it, it turns to a sort of a place of emotional, emotionality. Like there's a lot of crying. There's some kind of grieving, mourning. And then immediately it shifts to gratitude. I've always noted that it goes from anger to grief to gratitude. Like gratitude is the first thing that comes up because it's like, my inner child is like, thank you so much for, for, for doing that for me. And then once I get to the gratitude part, that's when I can notice like, oh, whatever enemy I had alongside them, there was some guardian who was intervening or that enemy figure themselves, the parent figure, the authority figure who was abusive, they also had sides of being a guardian as well. And it's like, I feel safe enough to invite those parts in. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what you were sort of helping me do with this character on Sky Castle. Um, I want to ask you this. Uh, when we're watching media, like when we're watching TV, um, like, is it possible to experience some kind of cathartic healing from that? Like watching, watching television when, when we feel some, cause people cry while, while watching TV or movies, they, um, laugh real hard or they get angry, you know, but it's a very visceral and emotional kind of experience. And I wonder like, in what way can that sort of, um, connect to therapy if at all? Um, the only answer I can come up with is something about reintegration of yourself and what trauma does to people is that it makes you a fractured person. Mm -hmm. You're completely divided from really understanding the connections between your head, heart, body, and soul. Mm -hmm. And, um, Sometimes you can't cry for your own stuff because it's too vulnerable. Your protectors won't let you. 
and like a movie or music or something else can kind of come in through the side door and awaken the parts of you that are in pain that aren't allowed time in your consciousness and in that way it it really depends on what they do in the moment of crying if they if they say stupid movie uh. then they're not they're not healing they're not taking it all away if they get mad at themselves or laugh at themselves and kind of make light of it then they're not making use of that mm -hmm. opportunity if they see that this is awakening in them something inside of them that needed to be acknowledged, held, hugged. And then they really go through the process of saying, I understand why this is so meaningful to me and why I'm crying here. And, and I love you for, I love you to, to the part that's hurting. Mm. Then you're making it into a healing experience. I see. Man, I love that. Okay. Um, I, I think I'm ready to do the shift now. Um, and I was like, ugh, like I was debating so hard whether or not to talk about this, but I think you'd appreciate it. So uh, my father served in the Marines. I know you mentioned your father also served in the military. Do you remember like which, like was it a Marine or Navy no. or Army? Don't know. Yeah, I think he was a drill sergeant. I don't know which okay. branch. Hmm. Uh, so my dad was a Marine and uh, his eldest brother, who's 25 years older, and my dad um, never really knew his father. So his eldest brother was like a father figure to him. He either served in the Korean War or was like being trained right thereafter. So either way, I mean, the Korean War never officially ended. Uh, but either way, this uncle, this kunabaji of mine, saw and experienced things while training as a Marine that were horrific. And when he got back home, he had full PTSD. He was a madman. He used to run around town with like a, with like a, a, a sickle, like threatening to kill people. He was an alcoholic. Everybody on my father's side was an alcoholic. My dad's an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic, but in recovery. And uh, yeah, like, so this father figure terrorized my dad, just was just a monster to my dad. And um, when my dad when my dad's conscription came, he had to go and serve. He was chosen for the Marines. And there's something about the Marines that is particularly painful for soldiers. They go through a lot. Like, I mean, every they all do. Like the Navy, Army, you know, Air Force, they all do. But the Marines in particular go through some, some intense hardship. So my dad served. When he got back home, this this older brother of his the the eldest brother of his came running to my father crying hysterically and held my dad and said you served in the marines like that's where i served you know he's like, it was so painful wait why was it painful like oh because no was... i didn't want that to happen to you too or because he, he, yeah, like he experienced such brutality when he was serving in the Marines and he now knows what his youngest brother went through and he feels bad, you know, okay. it was like this, it was empathy, compassion that my dad never got from his madman of an older brother. And my dad said that in that moment, this tiger of a brother of his who abused him 
all throughout his childhood was just fully humanized for him in that moment. Um, sorry, I'm like getting emotional now because um, I just saw my parents. They were visiting just last week and um, I have a very fraught relationship with them. Um, but the visit was fine. It was all like pretty gravy. Uh, but there, there's this uh, dream I had when I was 14. I was 14 years old and uh, I had this dream that I was a male soldier. I was in my uniform and I was in a dugout in the earth and I was laid out and it was pouring rain and it was uh, my body was like being covered with the water coming up and my legs were covered like blanketed with mosquitoes. I, I, it was unreal to me how many mosquitoes there could be when there's rain coming down that hard. And I was miserable. I was in so much agony. I was like, oh my God, I want to die. This is like hell. This is utter hell. And then- And you were the laying change... down like as if you were in a grave? No, 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 no. It was just like a dugout. Like, you know how soldiers have to lie low? I was kind of like lying low. And it was raining so hard that the water was kind of coming up. But I wasn't fully okay. submerged. But the water was kind of coming up, and my legs were covered in mosquitoes. I was being bitten, and then um, I was you were, you riding were crouched a... down. Sorry, I yeah, just I was, need to get the I visuals was, correct. I was hor horizontally lying down like this. My legs are here. I'm oh. here, and the water is kind of like coming up around my belly area because there's like a slight dugout under my under Got my it. ass area, and my legs are covered in mosquitoes. These mosquitoes were vicious. They were relentless. It was like, oh my god, what's wrong with them? And then I was writing a letter home. I couldn't tell to who, but I knew it was a woman. It was either a mother or a sister. I knew it was family. And writing this letter, I missed them so much that I was bawling my eyes out. Yeah. And then I woke up and then I went to the kitchen, I mean, to the dining room and I saw my dad eating and I told him this dream. And he looked at me like with full pause. And he was like, that's what I went through when I was serving in the military and then we didn't go into it that much thereafter but when i saw him last week i brought this dream up again and then i asked him specifically i was like were there that many mosquitoes when it was pouring rain and he took a pause and he looked at me dead in the eye and said you would not believe how many mosquitoes there were because it's the summer when he was um this one particular night it was the summer and summer's monsoon season in korea pouring rain and his uh, military uniform had this like porous leather, like a poncho to cover from the rain. And these mosquitoes would pierce through the leather. I mean, that's how intense they were. And he said that, you know, it was like such a painful time for him. Now, I'm reading also about like epigenetics and intergenerational trauma. And I just want to ask, like, I mean, are there instances where children can recall their parents' past traumas through in the form of dreams? Um, yeah, I guess that's my question. That's such a... <laughs> <laughs> Why? The, the question doesn't fit with the story. Yeah, I'm the... interested in whatever you have to say about the whole thing, I know, I, guess. I know, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> this okay. is part of my, um, I swear, I'm so, I, I come across so, uh, curt and brusque oh yeah i appreciate that though 
Yeah, no, no, I appreciate it. It makes us feel close. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's very Asian. Yeah. Um, my honest response to it is like, um, one, I suspend disbelief about any of this. I love believing in shamanism, magic, past lives, dreaming your father's experience. And not because I want to, I want to prove that this stuff can happen, but because it makes life so much more poetic and it gives depth to the experience of living. So I choose to believe that somehow you are able to dream your father's dream on one level. Let's, let's use that as the operating framework first. Okay. Then the question is, why would you do that? It must be such um, a yearning love to reach him. Maybe, I don't know. How did you understand you dreaming about him? Well, I'm a very vivid dreamer in general, and I place a lot of meaning to my dreams in general, because as you say, it just makes life more fun. And uh, I just read it in that way as just like, oh, this is a cool thing. But that I did got you to hear your this. story? You started yeah. with this, this chapter about his, his own older brother being in the Marines and then hugging him and being human in that brief moment when they finally shared a common experience. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I viewed this dream as your attempt to reach your dad. And like the only way that your, your dad was able to reach his brother was by going through the same experience he did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you mm -hmm. took it upon yourself to tell him the same story again when you saw him recently. And in that moment to have him sober, to wake and meet you with full pause, without all these enactments. Mm -hmm. And you're tearing up even now as you're hearing this. Yeah. What is the emotion here? Um... Well, there's a little bit of defensiveness, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I cry, I cry a lot. It's okay. Um, well, no, I think you're right. I think, uh, my dad, that experience that my dad had, and then that story my dad told me last week, which was the first time I heard that story, the one about his older, oldest brother. Oh. Um, it was the first time I heard it, you know? Like growing up, my dad was such a violent person. You know what I mean? Like both my parents beat the shit out of me. Um, but when my dad did it, it was like, it sucked even more. I mean, just from my retrospective feminist kind of way, it's like, how could a father hit his daughter? You know? Um, and so I've always resented this violent side of him, which stems from the military training but also from his own childhood traumas the childhood abuse that he suffered at the hands of his father figure his brother um 
And yeah, like while I sort of tucked away this dream, this soldier dream that I had when I was 14, I kind of shelved it away as like, oh, this is just like a cool thing, like a cool psychic dream I had, you know? When you said that that's actually me loving my father, trying to reach him in that way, it's like, oh, you know, you're right. Like, I'm trying to find a way to have compassion for him, you know? to empathize with his pain where does that violence come from you know it's like this is the poignancy thing that's happening like um when i saw my parents last week what i felt like i was doing in my brain was like hold i felt like a tree holding up multiple branches all at once holding everything up like all my muscles in my body and everything was holding them up like this like an acrobat which is something I'm not quite used to doing. It's a lot easier for me and other trauma victims to sever things in a, a binary of good and bad, you know, safe versus evil. Um, but what this was is like, oh, there are all these other smaller branches and leaves in between. They're not just good versus bad. They're a whole spectrum of human being, humankind. And I'm I'm holding them all up in recognition of that in an acrobatic position with full balance. And I was like, this is such an interesting feeling. I'm not used to this, but I, I appreciate it. You know, I think I'm developing a new muscle or skill that I like. And I think that's this, what you just read or analyzed through me is helping me do the same right now. Yeah. All I can do now is to share the other, the vision that I was having as you were speaking. And there's really, I can't even figure out why I'm doing it. There's no point to it, I think. So I'm just going to say to see where it lands. You, when I saw the image of the tree holding up this complexity, um, one, I fucking love trees. And I think they're like a source of wisdom. And what I was wondering about was that as you're able to hold complexity and as you're like flourishing and branching out and not just being a binary trunk what's your root system like mm. are you rooting yourself getting grounded and what does that mean You know, just yesterday, um, I had a Reiki session with a friend. She's just starting out at Reiki. And I told her, I have insomnia. I was like, I got my migraine thing. I have that under control. My insomnia, I've had it since childhood. I need to sleep, man. And she was like, when you meditate, do you imagine yourself rooting down? Like out of your ass, like from your root chakra. Yeah. Do you imagine yourself rooting down? And I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, my head is bouncing off in a billion different directions and they always go to a dark place and I'm always trying to bring them back into my breathing. That's the work that I do all day and every day. It's up here, here always, mm. like from here up. It's never, I kind of mm. neglect my lower self. And she was like, next time try and do that. Try to root yourself and ground yourself. And this past year is very, very new. But okay, so both my parents, grandparents side, they all, they're all Buddhist. And then my parents, 
decided to become born again Protestants. It's like a whole layer of trauma there for me. But that Protestant um, pursuit severs us from chizha, ritual, ancestral rite, all of that severs. So we didn't. We grew up not doing that. Also, my family is the only one that immigrated to the U.S. All of my relatives live in Korea, so we couldn't even go to Chesha and participate. Not that my parents even would want to, because they find that like, oh, that's not that's a big no-no in Christianity. But what I've been doing um, since last year, late last year, is I would leave out just a small bowl of water and like maybe a piece of fruit, light incense, and say a small prayer. Because before the prayer was to my higher self and to a divine source. But now I include my ancestors in that. Yeah. And uh, I'm doing that in, a, in an effort to root down and ground down, I guess. So that's my answer to that. And um, I once a friend of mine, um, she, I was in a working in a clinic and she disappeared for three years and she came back. She had gone off and learned Native American shamanism. Mm -hmm. And then um, I was like, sign me up. Let's do it. And then we did some soul retrieval work and other kind of ceremonial stuff. And in one of the um, one of the healing ceremonies that we did, um, I went. I retrieved uh, a hurt inner child from the depths of hell and then um, I flew out of hell. I went to this mausoleum in Boston that has the oldest cemetery in the U.S., oldest garden cemetery in the U.S. And I went into one of the mausoleums there, and it was my ancestral mausoleum. And inside there were all these banners in the chamber, and this lion spirit animal of mine started to shred all of the banners. And like blood was just like pouring out of these things and filling up the room. It was like a, a flood of blood. And as it was happening, it was like the most horrific thing. I didn't know whether to stop the lion from like mauling all these banners. But then as the banners were being shred, a spirit was freed from the banner. And mm. each one was an ancestor of mine. Mm. And with each one I bowed and I felt them saying to me, you do not have to carry our burden anymore. You're free. Mm. I love that. That's beautiful. Did you explore Korean shamanism like mudang at all? I am very far removed from any historical cultural rootedness. Um, oh. But I'm. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some lineage some something about me that's rooted in some of that stuff although i know that shamanism is is um reserved for mostly women in korea but in i consider my spirit to be more feminine anyway so hmm. yeah they have male shamans too there's like one mudang in la he's a dude <laughs> he went to hawaii for a retreat it's interesting but um yeah there, there are plenty of male shamans but you're right the majority are, tend to be women um, that's a fascinating story. What's your zodiac? Pisces. Get out. Me too. When's your birthday? <laughs> March 17. Are you into zodiacs at all? Mm, 
I, again, play with it for fun. Uh, so I don't yeah. memorize it. Whenever I've had my birth chart read, it's always like freaked me out that it's so accurate. Yeah. And then, um, and then the way that I use it scientifically or like as a clinical tool is that it reminds me that we're all different, that we're all like, there's at least 12 different types of us out there. If we're yes. going by like whatever Zodiac stuff. And yes. so it, the way that I operate in life is unique to me and other Pisces, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. And so it keeps me humble and presuming that people should be a certain way based on what I've learned in life. Ah, uh, okay. That's a wise answer. Yeah, no, the Pisces Zodiac is considered like the psychic one, like very dreamy, you know. Oh, Can God, you recall yeah. your dreams? Oh, I'm like super, like, I'm I'm barely tethered to this planet. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you like write down your dreams or did you ever experience like precognitive dreaming or things like that? I don't think so. I, I've stopped mm. dreaming. I'm too tired. <laughs> but I can't wait for um, I can't wait for more n like non-ordinary states of consciousness to be legalized and to be able to use that for therapy because a lot of the work that I do is very much like non-linear, non-scientific, non-narrative. Like even you, like as we were talking about your, your being in your head so much, I would want to make you become more poetic, more abstract, expressionistic, to wail mm -hmm. more, to not, to like turn off your head. To not turn off my head? I'm sorry, to, to turn off your head. Yeah, trust me, that is, I wish I could. Like, every night it's a battle. I'm like, all right, it's time to settle down. They don't settle down, you know? It's always lit up. And that was part of my uh, abuse problem. Like, I quit alcohol three years ago. Um, I smoke pot every now and then, but that's a slippery slope. Um, but yeah my addiction to substance abuse uh even food addiction and screen addiction it's mainly because i want to get away from my self my head um it's very noisy up there um but okay no i i love all this i love that you're pisces well, um i want to say one thing about what i've i'm always trying to convince my patients to do which they think is ridiculous and most of mental health is oriented around the philosophy that you're supposed to get rid of and alleviate symptoms. Mm -hmm. And for me, my belief is that you actually have to like de dive, uh, de dive into your suffering. Like lean into to, it. Oh yeah. You have to like be rattled. You have to like experience it. Oh. Like so much of trauma is about like avoiding bad things from ever happening again or experiencing the things that happened to us. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it's so not because kinda... I'm sadistic. I, it's yeah. not that I want you to be in pain. Uh -huh. It's that uh -huh. the only way that I think that you can ever release the pain is to mm -hmm. actually let it course through you in the way that it unfortunately needed to and mm -hmm. you dissociated or blocked it from happening when it right. was overwhelming. But now that uh -huh. you're safe, can you let yeah. the pain course through you so that right. it can be free? 
you can be free of it. So it's a scary process. Case, so in this case, the the insomnia sort sort of let it happen, just kind of sit with it, be with it, and then let that course through me. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but that's gonna become stupid. Like you're gonna you're gonna be like, fuck that doctor Hami. He's like so stupid. <laughs> like at night, like at three o'clock in the morning, you're gonna be so like yeah, because I'm literally like, up till three four a.m. Yes, yes. I know. It's not that actually. It's like when you see a spark of emotion, okay. do you allow yourself to feel it? When you mm -hmm. feel yourself pushing something away and you feel the urge to drink or something like that, mm -hmm. can you choose to say like, I allow myself to know what this is? Mm. Like you're, you're doing I great see. today. Like, well, no, there, there was this one moment when you cried and I wanted to ask you why, and then you didn't, or you moved on to your dream. You went, uh, it doesn't, it was something about when you were talking about having seen your parents, mm -hmm. but it, it, next time I see that you're getting emotional, do you mind if I interrupt you and, and I'll, and we'll just pause and you allow yourself to know what the feeling is yes by all means i give you full reign <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, this is more more of an honor for me uh so yeah by all means i'm down um even yesterday like when my friend was doing reiki like you know she's very new at it you know but i'm like i, I i'm okay with being a guinea pig it's totally fine you know um and you say that with full clarity and intention or are you saying uh -huh. that in a dissociated way no i'm excited for it like i'm i'm always okay. down for for an adventure yes yeah okay great because um and, and i like that you know you're open to these other like forms of therapy as well um because like my shrink she uses transpersonal psychology in my mm -hmm. own work for myself i also like i'll do like mushroom trips like a couple times a year or LSD trips a couple times a year to reset, to gain perspective. Are you with I'll, I'll... sitters? The first time, yes. But thereafter, I always do it alone because mm. I get too distracted by other people. But if I feel like I'm in a difficult spot, I know who to call. <laughs> um, and I've only had to do that once. So like I kind of prepare myself for, for things. Um, yeah but thanks for asking because you know safety is important uh no, but not just not just safety hmm. it's to it's so that you feel safe enough to go deeper and darker oh i see you know yeah i hadn't considered that because when I'm, when I'm with myself, I feel like I can go deeper and darker, maybe. I think that's why I choose to do it alone. Because if I'm with somebody, like, the caretaker part of me is, like, a little too, you know, with the other person. But, but I, would, I would contend that that's the first thing you can work on, then. The caretaking part? The, yeah, as soon as you're going in know that they are there for you it's all about tending to you and then that becomes a profound experience in the yeah. non-ordinary state mm -hmm. yeah yeah i'm not very good at that i'm not good at uh 
accepting compliments either. Like a few months ago, a friend of mine complimented me. He's like, you're a good writer, Grace. And I remember just staring straight ahead, <laughs> like fully ignoring him, you know, like pretending like it's not happening. And I was like, why am I doing, why do I do that? I need to get to the bottom of this. And I realized it's because it's love coming in. And I'm like, I don't feel safe when that happens. A compliment is love coming in, you know? They just say it, but in my head, it's love coming in and I'm rejecting it in my head because it's like, I don't feel safe, stop it. <laughs> Another thing I noticed over the weekend is um, I was at a friend's birthday party, it was all her friends and they were showing an interest in me and my work and it felt so uncomfortable. I'm like, stop asking questions about me and my work. You know, they're like, oh, you're writing a book? Oh, you do comedy? Can I come see? Oh, like, what is your comedy about? And I was just like, oh my God, you need to shut the hell up. You know, it felt like a nightmare. That I need to explore further too, but I think it's the same thing. It's just love coming in, you know, interest, attention. And I'm like, stop it. The hell? Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, I've, I'm, my brain's not responding to that because the only things that I could come up with would be something trite. Because okay. um, you already know, like, I think everyone would have an urge to say something about how you need to, like, you need to let your let love come in or, like, you need to mm -hmm. learn to love yourself, some mm -hmm. crap like that. But, yeah. but in that moment, it felt like you were already in that space of knowing all these things. And you were mm -hmm. just looking at yourself without being judgmental or needing to fix it you're just acknowledging that this is where you are in your growth mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely yeah like um like i like nature right i like planting things gardening both my both sides of my grandparents are all farmers you know i lived with my paternal grandparents i mean maternal grandparents when i was young for a, like several months at a time when i was very young and growing up on their farm, you know, there were like cows and pigs and chickens and cabbages and radishes and mushrooms and a creek. And it was like very, you know, idyllic and, you know, but um, I have this like morbid fear of worms and maggots it freak me out. And uh, like I went mushroom foraging recently and I found these worms inside the mushroom caps and I was like screaming in my kitchen. And I remember asking mm. myself out loud, I was like, Grace, are you going to let some worms get in the way of your love for mushroom foraging. And I was like, in this moment, yeah, <laughs> like this is where I'm at. They, they scare me, I can't do it, you know? Mm. Like I hope to get over it at some point, but worms scare the bejesus out of me. I personally think mushrooms are also creepy as fuck. Oh really? I love mushrooms. Yeah. And what, What's what's true about mushrooms and worms are that they are part of the process of rebirth, of of death mm -hmm. and rebirth. Yes. So I would imagine that this is all part of that same need to like um to go into the suffering part. You know, in the mm -hmm. psychedelic world they talk about having like allowing yourself to die, allowing yourself to have ego death, but even to mm -hmm. have like cycles of birth and death in a way it's like if you realize that the mushrooms and worms are doing their part in allowing you to regenerate as a mm -hmm. fresh new person in the spring 
then maybe there's some love for their part of the process. Mm-hmm. I had this dream where um, I gave birth to light and dark. Oh my gosh. Like, and, and I told dark, you have to take care of your sister. She's mm. ephemeral light mm. and, and you're strong. You're like pewter, but people mm. are going to vilify you. They're going to misunderstand you. They're going to re- renounce you. They're not going to understand what your job is. And I'm sorry that you have to go through this. And I just like cried and cried for this son of mine who was going to have to carry so much on his back to uphold the light. Yeah. But yeah, without the two of them, nothing would exist. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the shadows create the contrast. They are, the shadows are like the fabric of the universe, the substance of the universe and light dances on it to create the things that exist in it. They need to, they dance, they play, they swirl. Mm-hmm. They cycle, so in the same, in that way, I've been trying to embrace and appreciate the light part, the spring and the winter, the the living and the dying processes of life. Mm-hmm. You gave birth to yin and yang, and the yin and yang have uh, gender. They're gendered, feminine and masculine, and. In yin and yang, they have a speck of black and a speck of white in both. Um, there's this, uh, I think he's a physicist or a theorist. Is it Goethe or? Anyway, it's this guy. <laughs> His theory says that in in light prism, like darkness, what we see with our eyes as darkness is actually another spectrum of light. So his argument is that light penetrates everything even in the darkest black there's that's actually a that's actually a tone of light and i was like that is so profound you know um i love that dream though and i i love how you're you know like this is like where i kind of look up to you and admire you because you're always kind of down with the dark stuff. Like you don't seem so afraid of it. Whereas I'm still, I'm still kind of afraid of it. Yeah. Not that I'm not, I'm not like, um, not willing to look at it. You know, like my mother is that way. She disassociates a lot, blanks out, stares out the window a lot. You know, if I say things, that make her uncomfortable. She ignores me, disappears. Um, whereas my dad is a little bit more grounded and he's okay with looking at the darkness, given his family history, I guess. Um, but yeah, like I'm trying to reach that place, you know, of like, I, I guess, letting earthworms crawl inside of me and mushrooms grow in my face. Yeah. <laughs> and what I'm what I'm saying is that I'm not detached while those things are happening to me. Yes. I just surrender to the terror of it. Mm-hmm. And I like, there's a part of me that wants to fight and run and, and yeah, yeah just be overwhelmed. Okay. What do you tell yourself to 
like keep yourself present and there? Mm, nothing. I just, oh. yeah, see, that's the part where I'm trying to just become awareness without self-talk. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll choose to run away. Some, sometimes things are too hard. And then other times I'll be able to, for some reason, be able to endure it. Mm -hmm. And then I just let my body choose. Mm. Yeah. Let your body choose. That's deep. Okay. We're running out of time, but I have two more questions. Is that okay? And then we can wrap up. Yeah. If that's all right with you. Um, yeah, when you said awareness, I was like, oh, that's, that's so Ramdas, like, um, when I was like in sixth grade, it was a particularly rough time for me, because that's right around the time around sixth grade, seventh grade is when my childhood sexual traumas came up for me. Like when I was young, my parents had this tendency to leave me at other relatives homes which is very common in korea but you know causes a lot of developmental trauma and in this one particular case i was four i was left at an aunt's house my dad's older sister's house who already had an older daughter so she wasn't interested in having a toddler in her house and she kept telling me to go outside and play and one of those days when i went outside to play there was a predator neighbor and around Seventh grade is when that memory came up while I was reading a memoir about a woman who went through childhood molestation. But in sixth grade, I was going through, you know, adolescence and just whatever difficulties with parents and other authority figures in the Korean American community. And I had this dream. Um, at the time, I was going to church and it was Christ. It was Jesus. He and I were standing next to my fishbowl where I had guppies. And there was like morning light coming in and he was just standing there with me. We didn't say anything. Yeah. Like full awareness, full attention, just full love. That's what I felt. And uh, I told my parents about this dream and all they wanted to know was, what did he say? You know, what did he say? What did he say? And the thing is, like, he didn't say anything, right? But I'm a kid and I'm like, I have to come up with some kind of answer. So I was like, I don't know. He just told me to, like, just try really hard at things and that I'll get them. I don't know. I made up some bullshit. And then they put me up at the church in front of people in the congregation. Like, tell them. Tell them what Jesus said to you. And I said the same. He just, he just like, told me to try hard in life and that, you know, things will work out. But that is not what happened. Christ didn't say anything, man. All he did was stand there next to me. Full awareness, full love, full presence. Morning light that's coming it. in, fishbowl, me, him, that's it. Yeah. That's our best self. Yes. I think that's what, like, you know, people say, what is source or what is the divine, like, what is light? I think that's what that is. Yes. Yeah. I know. Yeah, it's love. It's, it's just love. Contemplative, yeah. compassionate love. But then the question is, how do you be that embodied in this human form? 
And that answer to me is that you suffer the throes of life. You mm. cry when you're supposed to cry and you, you're scared and you love and you enjoy things, but try to do it with as much awareness and savoring right. it as much as possible. Right. Because it, it goes back to how you analyzed like my storytelling and my dream about my dad and his marine thing is like oh like to me i hear you reaching for your father like reaching for his love or you know loving him and it's like oh i don't know like tara brock was talking about this she's like when somebody dies we feel sad and we cry but that just means that's just evidence that we loved that person you know like when i break a mug i really cherish it breaks my heart it sucks it's just, I really loved that mug, right? So in, in these moments of like heartbreak or some kind of mourning, it's like, oh, this is evidence of love yet again, right? And if we read it in that way, then it's like, oh, like love is always here, I guess. It's another way of looking at it. I, um, as, as well as that answer, which I believe, is that I've been trying to think that this is like analytic idealism, philosophically speaking, that everything's just consciousness. And um, in a way, like reality and the universe and our existence is consciousness wanting to savor every possible version of itself. And so for some reason, consciousness wanted to savor exquisite grief. And so my job mm. is just to grieve and map out the contours of exquisite grief. Mm -hmm. And again, not to be a masochist about it, right. but to throw yourself into it. Like I've had horrible things happen to me and I would say like, okay, bring it. And then I'd be like, yeah. oh my God, I can't breathe. When I'm in this much <laughs> grief, I'm bowled over with pain and I can't catch my right. breath. Right. Wow, this is really hard. Look at how bad this hurts. Like the whole body wow. contracts. Yeah. And it feels like it's never going to end. Yeah. But these are all just like phenomena that I'm data collecting for as consciousness. Oh, I see. Yeah. And then it's it it sucks for months. And then one day I'm I wake up and I'm, there's less grief. I'm like, "Oh, interesting. Look at that. There's like a little a respite from grief. How interesting is that?" And then you allow consciousness to fill that that moment and that expands it. And then suddenly your consciousness is re-engaged with the universe again. Yes, yes. It's like um, it's like the wheels of um, like samsara or karma or like the wheel of fortune card in tarot. It's and it's similar to how um, like when I do inner child work with myself, going from anger to sadness to gratitude. It's like it goes through this cycle. Yeah. And and while doing so, it's like there's a, a greater expansion. Like you're saying, oh, I add that to my consciousness. It's like, oh, you're adding that to this, to the expansion of your consciousness. Yeah. I love um, that. One thing that you did that I noted, and I don't know how much time we have to go into it, but you started that story about the dream of Jesus with your experience of your childhood thing. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. Well, how was that connected? I think he was preparing me 
for something. Because it was just one year after that I had that dream when that trauma uh, surfaced. I think it was like preparing me, like kind of be like, brace yourself, you know? Or don't forget this moment because something rough is coming. That's how I, that's why I started there. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for mentioning that. Because I, I had, for I, I had I had that dream, but I tucked it away for a long time, and then last year while napping during the day, I had a dream that in my dream altar space, like which is like just a room, it's high up on a mountain. There's a window that's looking out, and there's like you could look down into the slope of the valley. But in that room, which had no light, there was light sunlight coming in, but it was like midday afternoon light. There was a big fish tank in the middle, and beautiful fish, but they were all dying. They were all sinking and I was freaking out because I was like, oh, my God, who's going to clean this dead fish? I hate dead fish. Like and I was going through my Rolodex of contacts in my head. I was like, I could call this guy or this guy. All, all dudes. I'm like, no, they're such losers. Like, I can't depend on them. Like, this sucks. Like, I'm stuck with a fish. I have to clean it myself. And then I woke up and then I, I, I was scared because, you know, dead fish just like in general symbology is like a bad omen, blah, blah, blah. And then a friend of mine who's like into this stuff <laughs> says to me. She's like, the higher consciousness never punishes us. Uh, and she was like, so don't think of it as a bad omen. It's trying to get your attention. And that's when that childhood Jesus dream surfaced. So the reason why I mentioned that Jesus dream in connection to that childhood trauma is because, again, I think there was like this constant envelope of love or arc of love that's like, that's right. like keep going because there's a point. <laughs> like there, yes. it's gonna come and it's gonna become a circle yeah, yeah exactly yeah. um i had two thoughts one is like the dead fish are like embrace the worms and the mushrooms again that same idea oh. um there was another thing that i had noted that i didn't quite fold in yet in your dream about your father or as your father he was reaching mm -hmm. out to the women in the family Yes. I think that's significant. Mm -hmm. and it, it almost feels like a little bit of yin and his yang or something like that, where the, even you know, like he was a monster to you as a child, but he was also the one that you 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 yearned for most and you were angry at most. Yeah. Um, and in that dream, you were able to see that he, too, was yearning for love. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, I felt it on a very, like, visceral level. I felt it as if it was my own. The missing my sisters or my mother. The misery of that moment. Wanting to be in their warm embrace and being comforted by these women rather than being in this hell of the military that I'm stuck in, in this horrible mm. environment. Um, I felt it as if the it other, was my own. Yeah. The other interpretation if we were to play with an intrapsychic interpretation there's a part of you that you vilify the angry part mm -hmm. the one that's yeah. always in pain and fighting for survival and you're trying to make peace with that part too and see that that part is also intentioned to seek love and understanding that I like, that it's seeking love. 
because right now I'm in a place where I'm trying to make friends with that side. Like when I think back on the times when I was acting out a lot as a child, like at this point in my life, I look back at her and I'm like, good for you. You know, I'm like so on her side. Right. Like every time she throws a fit or go shoplifting or like yes. whatever, I'm like on her you side, you know, Good. but um, I'm still struggling with like more older parts of me who have who's done that. Yeah. And I'm, it's like it's it's a it's a battle, but I'm I'm trying to get to the other side. Like I'm in the net of that threshold right now, trying to push through and get to the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like how you frame it that way. That the anger part is also with this intention of seeking love or getting to love. I think that that's going to help me with that journey a great deal. So thank you for saying that. Um, the one thing I wanted to mention was because you always mention the Hulk as a, a, a metaphor. I was wondering if you saw that movie, The Iron Giant. No, I didn't. Okay. Because, you know, when you talk about trauma, how it obliterates or fractures the self, right? But in healing, it's about piecing those parts back together to become the whole. Yeah. I recommend The Iron Giant to you. I think you'd love this film. It's based on a Ted <laughs> Hughes book. Man, the ending. I think you'd appreciate it. So that's that's my contribution to you in return for this amazing Thank you. <laughs> talk with me. Thank you so much. I have to we had we have to wrap up in a certain way. We have to come back to our intention. Oh yeah. Okay. Did you get answers that help liberate you from your burden? Yes. Okay. You feel, how do you feel in your body? My chest area feels a little lighter right now. Good. Yeah. Thank you for asking me. How do you feel? <laughs> um... I don't know. I'm a, I'm a nervous wreck. Really? So like, yeah, my heart's racing. I'm like clammy and sweaty. Oh, so yeah. You're I've not just a been... performer. Sorry about that. I should have been more mindful of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's yeah. more that I was working really hard. Yes, you're right. I And the aspect of it being observed adds another layer yeah, of stress. Yeah, you're on camera. It's more yeah. higher pressure. But I... I didn't get any sense of that. I thought you were amazing. Thank you. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> you're, you're really good. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Right. Well, thank you, Dr. Hong. Of course. Thank you. Thank you.